Hello and welcome to today's VJ Humonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from Heinz Ludwig and Meryl Bexach, who discuss various parameters that can be used to identify high-risk multiple myeloma. The experts also comment on the possibility of incorporating bispecific antibodies and CAR-T therapy in the treatment of high-risk patients, and further highlight the value of using MRD negativity in this patient population. Hello, uh, my name is Heinz Ludwig. I'm working at the Wilhelmina Cancer Research Institute in Vienna. I'm a hematologist, oncologist, and have a keen interest uh, in multiple myeloma for quite some time. And today I have the privilege uh, to uh, enter discussion with Professor uh, Meral Bexach, uh, who is the head of the Department of Hematology uh, of the uh, University of Ankara. She is uh, well known because of her many studies in multiple myeloma. She is leading transplant programs, allogeneic transplant programs, and I think we're also leading the tissue typing laboratory for some time. So we have a very experienced colleague here, and uh, we want to discuss uh, the uh, recent developments which have been presented at the meeting of the International Myeloma Society here in Los Angeles between August 24 and August 28. So Meral, one of the important topics and discussions we had was the discussion how to define high-risk multiple myeloma. So what is uh, your uh, view here? How, what should we do here to define those patients? Well, I think it, the, yesterday there was a well-attended session, uh, even though it was late after 6 yeah. uh, p.m. and the, the hall was full-packed. And uh, the, there was a, um, uh, presentations covering the topic from uh, the basic science and also from, from the clinician's perspective. And, um, and there was a very hot uh, debate following it. And, um, and the message I received I think um, so it, it is a good um, uh, revision on what's been uh, published during the last uh, couple of months and there, there is consensus that the RISS is not uh, sufficient to uh, to define the high-risk patients which is roughly around 25% of the total myeloma population and among these there are uh, less around 10% ultra high-risk group uh, although uh, based on all these in, uh, insufficient descriptions, there have been some clinical just for, trials. Just for clarification, uh, how do we define ultra high risk? Uh, uh, yeah, I think that yeah. that is based on the number of uh, cytogenetic abnormalities. If, if, if there is single abnormality, then uh, it is um, uh, high risk. But if they have the double hit or triple hit, especially if it's triple hit in that case, uh, ultra high risk uh, is uh, defined, but uh, in the RISS, 1Q abnormality is not uh, present. Uh, that is a matter of debate, and we, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, it's a matter of debate because uh, 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 1Q21 uh, uh, is a high-risk uh, feature, uh, but uh, there are different reports depending also on the amplification of the gene. If you have gain of one copy, it may be less uh, uh, important uh, 
as compared to uh, amplification, uh, so four copies and more. But certainly, uh, at least in our studies, uh, uh, 1 to 21 has an impact on outcome, no question. And, uh, but aside from these genetically defined patients with high-risk disease, I think there's something um, which we should also discuss. So uh, when, when we do cytogenetics at uh, diagnosis, is that enough for the uh, further cause of the disease or what should be done? Well, uh, yesterday, this, this was uh, uh, one of the issues that everybody agrees that uh, when we are doing eye fish, we just roughly uh, quantify them. And we don't really recognize if, if there are clones versus subclones, which are small clones at diagnosis. And the potential, uh, the, the threat is that uh, following the, the treatment under the pressure of the treatment, those subclones who are refractory may eventually um, proliferate and dominate the, the, the um, uh, marrow. And so that is the discussion. Should we consider these as a as a potential problem or should we ignore them? Um, because we do not really know how they will behave uh, based on the treatment. So this is somehow paradox. We uh, administer treatment eliminate uh, the sensitive clones, but that is a big advantage for the uh, highly resistant clone, which may be very small at the beginning, and then um, uh, expands and, and create the major problems for the patient. Also, uh, there may be a new cytogenetic lesions acquired during the disease. So, uh, so there is, uh, in my opinion, uh, there is need to re-biopsy patients uh, when they relapse in order to figure out whether there are additional cytogenetic lesions. And um, that's what we need to do. Uh, the question then pops up, aside from uh, cytogenetics, are there other features or characteristics uh, which help us to define uh, high-risk patients um, outside of the conventional cytogenetic high-risk group. Yeah, so I mean, um, there are uh, now commercially commercially available tools, uh, Sky92 and other, other and uh, Arkansas group published the first gene expression profiling. But yesterday during the, the panel, um, even the experts, they declared that um, it's not prime time for these type of uh, technologies to be applicable to real life. And what is, is clinical defined high risk? How, how would you define patients yeah. who present with clinical um, features which which make which makes them automatically to high risk patients? What yeah, I think you? at diagnosis, um, the, um, the tumor burden um, plus uh, the uh, global spread uh, through the body, uh, including extramedullary disease, uh, in especially in the soft tissue. During this uh, Congress, we had a uh, very good uh, ex uh, meet expert session on uh, extramedullary disease, and uh, and it was also repeated during during the, the panel yesterday that paraskeletal disease should not be considered as high risk, but uh, soft soft tissue is different. And um, plus um, the frailty of the patient is also an, uh, another uh, poor risk because that uh, prevents the patient to, uh, to uh, reach the maximum treatment uh, efficacy. Yeah. 
And, what, uh, and I think we should add to this category also patients uh, early relapses, patients yes. uh, who may, first of all, patients who don't respond well to first-line therapy, but secondly, patients who respond to first-line therapy, but relapse uh, uh, early on. And what is was intriguing uh, and what was presented during the IMS meeting was that the fraction of, uh, um, of course, standard risk patients uh, which uh, suddenly which develop these uh, um, clinical features and, and turn out to be high risk without cytogenetic features. So that is something which we need to consider. Of course, then we have patients uh, with plasma cell leukemia and so on, which are high yeah. risk patients. Yeah. But circulating tumor cells. <laughs> circulating plasma Separate, cells, yeah. yeah. That's another yeah. maybe yeah. indirect way of uh, recognition. Yeah. So what is your uh, clinical approach uh, to a patient uh, with, first of all, do you distinguish uh, between different characteristics uh, of patients with high-risk myeloma or do you treat them all as high-risk myeloma? Well, I think uh, this is an international meeting and um, the discussion is based on all the availabilities and the, uh, the, the approvals. Uh, and uh, yesterday it was discussed that, I mean, um, uh, quadruplet is certainly the best uh, that we can provide to patients at uh, diagnosis. And But the, in terms of the proteasum inhibitor, uh, either the proteasum versus carfism of what's your opinion? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, now there are very good studies which have for uh, the study which used the proteasome inhibitor, uh, of course, cafizumib, Reftex, um, and cafizumib, uh, and the uh, regimen showed very good results. But in the end, when they looked at the uh, long term follow up, uh, KID uh, with transplant was the most efficient uh, uh, protocol. It was compared. To KCD uh, with transplant and consultation, and it was compared um, to 12 cycles of uh, KRD without transplant. So the winner was um, KRD plus transplant plus consolidation, and then patients were randomized to cafilzomib uh, rev limit maintenance or rev limit maintenance alone. What the study showed is. There was a very good uh, response rate, deep responses, um, but patients with high-risk cytogenetics, um, uh, particularly those uh, with uh, trouble risk, um, tended to relapse earlier. Yeah, I think uh, yesterday, uh, this is the second time that we are hearing the French data in high-risk, that yeah. they have used the DARA-KRD. Uh, in a similar way, induction, transplant, followed by consolidation, and uh, so including the option of second transplant. So I think that that's, that gives, provides very good results uh, in these specifically high-risk patient groups. So, so the standard for treatment approach now for high-risk is, uh, I think there's agreement, is induction, transplant, consolidation, a second transplant, uh, if you wish, additional consultation, and, uh, and then uh, maintenance with lenalidomide, possibly in uh, conjunction with a PI. Yeah. Yeah. So that is what we have, but we agreed that is not enough, and so we need um, new treatment concepts for the future. Um, so, uh, but there is some hesitation to move uh, new 
trucks into the front line, into this uh, patient group. But I think there is no other way we have to do that. And we had a discussion whether bikes should be included because bikes give you a response rate of 60% in relapsed refractory patients. And we have no other drug which gives us 60% response rate, particularly in relapsed refractory patients. So I think it's maybe plausible, in my opinion, it's plausible to include those into the uh, first-line therapy. Now, what do you think about uh, in the future about CAR T cells, including in those patients? Including well, I mean, uh, CAR T cells yeah. are also uh, highly efficient in yeah. these patients, but compared to non-high risk, the response is inferior, and the, the rate of response yeah. and the durability yeah. of response. Yeah. So, immunotherapy does not seem to be the the, the sole solution. Yeah. Uh, however, if we can, as you said. Uh, integrate them to earlier phases yeah. of the yeah. treatment. Maybe that could be helpful because the the, the the risk with high risk is the drug resistance. I think there's something which uh, we should also shortly tackle, discuss. So if a patient with high risk cytogenetics achieves uh, MRD negativity, uh, sustained MRD negativity, uh, the master study, I think everybody refers to the master study and uh, there it was proven that uh, MRD negativity, although within the limitations of that study because the interval between the two MRD measurements was short yeah. and not unlike the guidelines that we are currently following. So that could be one of the reasons, but uh, high-risk disease, they, uh, they, they may achieve response early, but the, the, the durability of the response in high-risk, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah, so there's a high tendency for relapse. Uh, but those who uh, achieve MRD negativity and remain in sustained MRD negativity, uh, their uh, uh, survival prospects are much better than of those all, of all the others. Yes, so there's there's some hope that it's a little bit similar to standard risk patients, but we but um, our hope will not be fulfilled. But they do quite well. Let's let's. Say. Yesterday, Ken Anderson yeah. brought up yeah. the, the the importance of migraine environment in terms of controlling. Yes, uh, that is something which is coming in the future because we, we have now said we define high risk based on the genetic uh, features of the patient, based on clinical parameters. But what we didn't look and discuss until now when including the definition of high risk is the uh, microenvironment. Uh, and uh, there are now more and more data popping up that uh, the microenvironment situation of this T-cell populations, NK populations, um, at baseline has an impact, a significant impact on the outcome of patients. So that may be a, a parameter which may be included in the future. Yeah. And another perspective, I think, um, is the, the clonal hematopoiesis. And, and um, that, is that is something which predisposes people to um, myeloma? Yes, um, but we had a discussion because we had an excellent uh, presentation on clonal hematopoiesis and one of the questions was whether uh, patients with uh, immune impairment, patients like myeloma, have an increased risk for clonal hematopoiesis 
which in the long run uh, may uh, end up in myeloproliferative uh, diseases. Uh, the, uh, the presenter, the lecturer, did, did not say that there is, in his opinion, an increased risk per se by the myeloma, but there is increased risk by, by, by treatment, which is... Uh, yeah, uh, that is the, uh, the yeah. inducer. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Heinz. I think uh, we had a good overview of what has been uh, spoken yesterday, and uh, I'm sure the attendees of the Congress uh, will, uh, uh, on the virtual platform, will continue to uh, hear what's being presented here at the meeting. And um, we are kind of fortunate to be uh, in this uh, area because it's evolving, and new data is always coming. And and I, I want. Uh, uh, appreciate the most is the the, uh, the eagerness in the society and the, the enthusiasm and that uh, efficiently brings up more data and the progress that we are getting so far. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.